Well, whatever, all right? I mean, it is, it's just, it's time to grow up, you know? I have a steady job, this is what I'm doing, and now all of a sudden, if you had these problems, I wish you would have said them earlier before I signed on the goddamn dotted line. I'm pointing out that you had a dream, that you followed, that you were sticking to. This is to. the dream. This is the dream. This is not Guys your dream. Guys like me work their whole lives to be in something that's successful, that people like, you know? I mean, I'm finally in something that 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 that, that people enjoy. Since when do you care about being liked? Why do you care so much about being liked? You're an actress. What are you talking about? <laughs> Maybe you just liked me when I was on my ass because it made you feel better about yourself. Hello and welcome to The Letterboxd Show, our podcast about the movies people love watching from Letterboxd, the social network for people who love watching movies. I'm Gemma, please say hello to Slim. Hello. And welcome to this episode, a big, huge Letterboxd Insider ep. We have just dropped the 2022 Midway Top 25. That is the highest rated films on Letterboxd so far this year. And that data was compiled by the inimitable Jack Moulton, otherwise known to regular Letterbox listeners as the one, the only, Jack's Facts, or as the listener calls him, Jack with the facts. <laughs> he is a Letterbox member who is truly everything, everywhere, all at once. Gemma, I'm sweating, and not because it's so hot in this basement right now, but my completed top movie collections, compared to Jack, are incomplete who, according to his own letterbox stats, has watched all of the Oscar Best Picture winners, the entire IMDb Top 250, all 100 of AFI's 100 years, 100 movies. I'm almost out of breath. I got to catch my breath after all these collections. (laughs) And 99% of the letterbox Top 250, so only two to go. We'll find out which very soon, so get your watch list ready. Because Jack is here to explain how it's all possible that out of all those movies, he managed to narrow it down to four faves. Dog Day Afternoon, Secrets and Lies, La N, and the movie that did not win the Oscar for Best Picture, La La Land. <laughs> Jack, welcome to the Letterbox Show. Hello. Thank you for having me. A longtime listener. Long time listener, but obviously not first. <laughs> obviously, we did we did have that wonderful conversation together with uh, Alex Winter when you dropped a massive space yeah, physics right. situation, existential crisis. <laughs> anyway, it was a good show. Um, right. Okay, so time to fess up. Which two films have you been putting off, and why? Ritual and um, Happy Hour. So Happy Hour is a film by the director of Drive My Car. And it is five hours long. Oh my God. Get a grip, five Jack. So that's, well, I'm, wait, I'm waiting for the next COVID for another lockdown because that's how I watched the rest of the top 250. And I had the time for like uh, War and Peace, which was seven hours long. Oh my um, gosh. I'll get around to it for sure. This is streaming on Mubi and Criterion right now. Happy hour, 2015. 317 minutes. Oh so if anyone wants their weekend planned out, 
there you have it. <laughs> it's funny how you look at a you look at a film uh, duration and freak out, but then you look at a like a thousand episode anime series and you're like, oh, I'll crack into that this weekend. <laughs> it's nothing. Yeah, 19 <laughs> hours of Stranger Things I'm planning to watch with my family this weekend, and it's like a it's it's like, nothing. Yeah, but happy hour. You can wait. <laughs> I was looking at my own stats to compare with uh, Jack's, and I'm respectable of the letterbox top 250. TM, the IMDb one, I'm 60-ish. The Oscar winners, I'm 60-ish. But there's one that I was really low on, and I feel embarrassed to even say because I'm a big horror fan. I'm only 33% of the Letterbox Top 250 horror. Oh. I feel sick about that. Mm. Just saying it out loud, Jack. There's lots of obscure films in that one. I'm 9% on that, and I do not feel sick about that at all. I feel quite- <laughs> 9%, okay. Quite, I feel, I feel quite well, well slept about 9% of the top 250 <laughs> horror. I feel a bit sicker about being only 24% on the top 100 women-directed films. Wow. I could do, I could do better there. That's Maybe if I watch some women-directed horror, I could like yeah, get both of both those out. circles. Two birds, two lists, one stone. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say I am on the Letterboxd Top 250, I'm at 32%, but I am 100% on the films of Baz Luhrmann and 100% on the Paddington films. So I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> the only lists that matter. So I'm guessing you're a completionist, Jack. It's probably safe to say. Safe to say for sure. I, I, I finished the year in review for last year. I was probably the only one to do so. <laughs> you are like every time Christmas rolls around and we have to... You know, everybody else is holidaying and I'm we have to- all of them. Mm. Yeah. We we go into our hobbit holes to start working on that year in review and Jack is like, literally Mr. Facts. Um, am I sure this is an action movie? Yeah. <laughs> I have to find out for myself. It's only one way to find out, my but is friend. But is, <laughs> is it a completionist thing like Slim asked or is it a- you just love movies, man. I just love- I love that um, 100%. That little popcorn with the hundred mm. is so satisfying. It is. It looks really good on your page. I am a movie fan for sure. Yes. What is the craziest, like the 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 biggest length you have gone to to see a film that you needed to tick off a list? Oh my gosh! I've got one, and this was one of my last films to complete the top two hundred and fifty during the pandemic. Ah, and it's the film Le Fleur, which is. 12 hours long. Oh my God. It's just an afternoon. That's just an afternoon. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of longest way I went. Right. And then we changed the rules in the list and it, then it fell out the list. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why it sticks out to me because it's still not on my record. What about you, Slim? What's the... Uh, what is the... I'm still just gawking at the page for the floor. 803 minutes. That's like, <laughs> that's, right. that's two Stranger Things there's episodes. A, there's a mini series within the film. Oh, yeah. Like a literally like a four hour Cripes. miniseries with episodes and then a film in the at the start and at the end. I don't think I have a kind of wacky scheme to track down a movie, but I just do remember a lot of the movies that I'd seen when I was younger. I'm like, I sound like so old when I say this, but like Tubi wasn't a thing when I was a kid. You can't just watch junk on yeah. Tubi back then. You had to go to like Comic-Cons and get pirated DVDs of, or tapes of the original Fantastic Four movie from... Roger Corman, like now you can just put that on YouTube or whatever. But back then, you you felt like you were a criminal in those comic right. cons behind those movies. The original Captain America movie, <laughs> remember, like that went direct, straight to video. The Red Skull was Italian. Just crazy stuff to track down those old comic movies. 
I think I've done more like going to great lengths for film tourism rather than anything else. Mm. Like the time I went all the way to the Alamo and asked the security guard where the basement was just just to honour the great Pee Wee Herman. But um, <laughs> just I was just thinking about like like insane lengths that people go to, like for example, you know, maybe holding up a bank in Brooklyn to get a little bit of cash for your girlfriend's operation. Which brings us to the great Sydney Lumet's 1975 Dog Day Afternoon, which as of uh, the time of recording, I just finished 10 minutes ago. And so I'm still, <laughs> I am still sweating from, I'm still at the airport. I'm still at the, no spoilers. I'm still getting the A train all the way back from JFK. So um, do you want to kick us off here, Jack, about this incredible, based on a true story, uh, film that's, you know, good two hours long. Sonny and Sal attempt a bank heist which quickly turns sour and escalates into a hostage situation and standoff with the police. 4.2 average on Letterboxd. Why is this at the very top of your four faves? You know, this wasn't a film that I immediately loved. This was a real grower for me. Uh, when I was first getting into film, when I was 13, I was working my way down the IMDb Top 250 just to get those essentials first. And that year for Christmas, my stepdad got me like 30 to 40 DVDs, films that he already loved and Doc Day was in that batch. And I watched it in the new year and I thought it was, it was great. Didn't love it just yet. I definitely enjoyed it and mind it. Um, but it was actually our good friend Mitchell Beaupre had it in their top 10 of all time. Don't know them. I've never time. heard of them. <laughs> oh, okay. They're on a great show called Weekend Watchlist. Should give it a go. They won't let me be on that show. <laughs> All the times I offered and then the tumbleweed gif comes through the I'll talk to the, the producer channel. of that show, whoever that might be, see what we can work out. So we have Mitchell, the wonderful Mitchell, to thank for Dog Day Afternoon coming into your life. Or coming back into your life. Yes, I, well, I, I, I watched it another... It wasn't until I watched it about four or five more times that I put it in my top ten as well because there's no diminishing returns in this film. That is amazing. The, the idea of a film that doesn't have diminishing returns is so compelling. That is the, the line of the episode mm. so far. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I've been, I don't know why I've been putting this off for so long. It, it's a, the weirdest thing, but Prospect Park West, where that bank is based, where that entire exterior was shot, uh, two blocks up, from our coffee shop, we would have film tourists in the coffee shop all day, every day, who'd come out to so cool. take a photo mm. outside the bank and Attica, Attica. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not suspicious. No, it's not a bank. <laughs> it's just the building, right? Was this a first time finally viewing or was it the first yeah. time in a long time? No, oh, first wow. time finally. And I think it was the pressure of everybody just going, you gotta see it, you gotta see it. I got slim-fluenced. Like, mm -hmm. this is 1975. Like, 50 years later, I've still been avoiding the slim-fluence until Jack came along. And yeah, the cognitive dissonance of watching... Like, I just think I love the idea of such real, real locations because that, like, my kid's middle school is in there, you know, in the back, in the background of all of the street shots. It's like, what no the way. heck? That's so yeah, cool. but this is, like, long before we lived there. But it's just, um, 
I don't know. I, get, I think for me, it added to the idea that this is based on a true story and that this could really happen. And I mm. was putting myself in those shoes. Like I've stood on that street so many. I've shopped at the veggie shop across the road, imagining what would happen if this happened now in this neighbourhood. Would we still all gather around and start cheering on Sal? Or right, would we be right. like moved back five blocks and not able to get anywhere <laughs> near it? That's definitely what sets it apart among my other top films because my other favorite films are so carefully constructed and crafted and labored like all of the Wes Anderson and Charlie Kaufman and David Fincher films I had to avoid or else Gemma was going to strike (laughs) on this episode. (laughs) But Dog Day Afternoon just comes so organically and is so free from contrivance. Like all the conflict is organic. The humor is organic and hilarious in that first act because Sidney Lumet's direction is just so in service of the films. He just gets out of the way and they're more immersive for it. I wrote in my notes, um, remember when they filmed movies in real locations? I just, because I, I just watched the <laughs> Thor trailer in theaters oh. and I just felt like so depressed oh, you, seeing the trailer for that movie. The green <laughs> I mean, it looked like, I'm so down on the Disney Dome volume <laughs> thing, but that movie just looks like they filmed that in one large room. And maybe added some set pieces, but I like mean, they so did one large back, green room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like this one is in like you know a very claustrophobic setting, and I remember I felt this is the first time I watched this maybe since college. I wrote in my notes that this was like one of those film school movies, like film <laughs> classes in community college that this they played. They rolled out the TV like let's watch Dog Day Afternoon, and I felt like I was in that bank. Probably like by hour one through hour two, like, oh my God, get me out of this bank. I feel so stuck in there with the employees. Mm. And everything about this movie is so well done. Al Al has sort of like become like, everyone's having fun with Al. Like he's a meme. He's got that Shrek phone case. But he's one of the all-time, <laughs> one of the all-time greats. Everyone just needs to realize that and remember it. <laughs> I love Shrek. I'm fine with the phone, the Shrek phone case. Personally, some people they they like to poke fun at Al, but I'm not here to poke fun at Al. I love Al. I love myself. living in a world where we can yeah. say that Sunny from Dog Day Afternoon has a Shrek phone case. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when you sort of say a film school movie, I was I was just reflecting on that because I I was thinking about all the ways in which this film over two hours uh, has really amazing changes of pace. And so, you know, in one minute, there's a whole bunch of quite chaotic editing from inside to outside, from one side of the crowd to the other, to the barbershop over the road where the feds are. And then, mm-hmm. and then in the same breath, it will stop and just sit on a, on a MCU of mm-hmm. Al on the phone to Leon, of Sonny on the phone to Leon. And it's just Amazing. And you don't like, it never cuts away to all the other people who are in the bank, to all the other hostages. We never go for a reaction shot of them while he's just having this long conversation. Mm-hmm. We know they're there. We don't need to see them. We know them well enough to not need the histrionic cutaways. Like I was sort of thinking about Ambulance, Michael Bay, and how there's a <laughs> there's a bank holdup in that film. <laughs> thinking about all the bank holdups since 1975 and, and the histrionic uh, hostages and how just cool the women in this are. Oh my God. Yes, I love the women. Mm-hmm. Dog Day oh. Afternoon. Their resilience is so inspiring. Incredible. It's like, yeah, if I was in a bank, if I was a bank hostage, 
I'd like to be like them. Oh man, yeah. I want Sylvia to be my boss. Penelope Allen yes. is extraordinary in this. Absolutely. Yeah. So what? So so where does it sit in the sort of uh, film school technique for you? Like, what what are some of your favorite Lumet methods? Lou methods. My method. Oh, something that I love about Dog Day Afternoon that is actually kind of hard to achieve is that the the characters in Dog Day Afternoon, nobody actually knows what is actually going on in the present moment. Mm. But everybody has an opinion. They have knowledge of procedures, but otherwise it's just a lot of half-truths and good guesses and bad assumptions, which ironically I find a lot more true to life than films that try and strive for a sense of clarity and objectivity, mm-hmm. maybe even twists. But that's that's why I find really interesting about the writing and the improvisation of Dog Day. Yeah, I also liked on this viewing about how I think maybe nowadays I'm used to these kinds of movies where the hostages join up or they're like buddy-buddy with the person. There was always that kind of like mm. middle ground shades of gray with the characters that were hostages. They weren't, they didn't ever like fall in love with Al and his cause necessarily. Um, it just kind of stayed true to that confusion that you talked about. Like they're not really sure. Everyone has opinions. They want to get out. They want to leave for the most yeah. part. Mm. And they're still just frightened up until hour two, really with the, the, the finale of the film. But there, there's so much more interesting for being kind of useless yeah. at the bank robbery, kind of being a little bit fragile about it. I mean, obviously they're abusive and intimidating. I'll, I'll give you that, but that's way more interesting than those chaotic, chaotically violent bank robbers who don't care if they kill anyone or the super calculated, we have 47 seconds in and out of this vault. <laughs> but I love, I love heat. I'll, I'll, I'll I'll give him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, Spike Lee's The Inside Job? Where does that sit for you on, on I bank heist movies? I only watched that recently, actually. Ah. I only liked it. I didn't. I didn't quite love it as much as I expected. But I do. I. I really love bank robbery movies, <laughs> and this is obviously the best one. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. It just kind of reminds me of like uh, gold rushes. Oh, yeah. Just kind of that connection to the American dream. I only recently watched and loved Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, yeah. Which I liked before, but then I watched it again. I was like, okay, this is everything that I love in movies. Mm. So I love, I love bank robberies. See, I'm a point, I'm a point break girl when it comes to bank robberies. I haven't seen that one yet. Wait, I what? need to see that one. Wait, so. what? Oh, I know. Stop the show. Okay. Wait, pause. Yeah, I didn't okay. realize that's a bank robbery movie. I didn't know it was a bank robbery. I knew. I knew it's kind of a steal. Oh, uh, you're like, okay. it's a Keanu Watch movie. List. It's a bank robbery movie, Jack. Yeah. It's one of the best. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, I do right. want to, before we move on any further, I do want to call out that when Gemma said ambulance, it sounded like a sheep. Ambulance. <laughs> 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 I had to like mute my mic. I don't need to, I can't move on. Speaking of the American dream before I point out that um, Al Pacino yelling, put the guns down to the entire Prospect Park West crowd as me to the whole of America. What a scene. Absolutely. Um, also, a couple of other notes. Um, I desperately want that airport limo to come back in fashion. Um, mm. I think airport transport completely sucks. I love I love that limo. 
Is there a letterbox list of best telephone calls in movies? Because this needs to be very near the top. Like oh. there are two or three excellent Absolutely. telephone calls mm-hmm. in this film. And then uh, uh, finally, if you were um, holding hostages, gents, what would your demands be? <laughs> Cripes. My demands? Yeah. I'd probably, for for food for the hostages and myself, I'd probably order like some kind of bucket of chicken at the very least. <laughs> yeah, some Chinese food? Contained. Yeah. Some Chinese food. <laughs> yeah, pizza Let's goes cold so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hang on. I'm talking, I'm talking jets and diamonds or, or at least oh, like... Oh, no, no, no. We just want dinner. Meanwhile, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm saying like, KFC <laughs> original recipe, please. I'm like, you know, I'm thinking Jack's going to say, oh, it's easy, a week in the criterion closet undisturbed things. But no, you're all talking about fried chicken. <laughs> just simple we're simple men we have simple needs oh, simple needs before we move on I just want to point out a couple of letterboxed reviews uh, which which cover a few things we haven't covered already although here's one about pizza Ray writes I want to be in that bank so bad please let me have pizza party with gay Al Pacino <laughs> I think that's beautiful um, related Mad writes Al Pacino said trans rights and it's so true and um <laughs> And then this, which, you know, in your sweaty basement apartments, you'll appreciate Amaya, right? Science can't explain how Al Pacino in this movie looks like he's on the verge of a mental breakdown and is sweatier than legally allowed in most countries, yet still manages to be attractive. God, he's so sweaty in this movie. Lots of Al Pacino lust in the review section. And if one final fact, which I I didn't realise until now, I hope it's true, uh, from Hallie... Uh, in their review, the making of this film literally paid for Elizabeth Eden's sexual reassignment surgery in order to use the story rights. And that's quite possibly the most beautiful thing about it all. Mm. I mean, movies can change lives, literally. Uh, Just this week, I rewatched Secrets and Lies by Mike Lee for the first time since 1996. There were so many people drinking cups of tea in that movie, I decided to switch from coffee to tea. And my, <laughs> wow. gut, my gut health in the last four days has markedly improved. And I think I'm onto something. It's the Mike Lee <laughs> liquid diet of cups of tea <laughs> every I hour. I did drink two hour. cups of tea during this film. Slim, how many cups of tea did you end up drinking during Secrets and Lies? Zero cups of tea. Why? I have had zero, zero cups of tea in maybe the last 20 years. You're not I'm watching not Secrets and Lies, right? <laughs> no, I, you, I, no. One of my other demands would be the original recipe, KFC, <laughs> and then also some five-hour energy probably <laughs> in, in place of the tea. Not even an ice, Are you not even an iced tea guy? I'll have a Snapple every so often. Oh, okay. Lemon, lemon Snapple. Okay. I could, I could imbibe. All right. Once in a while. All right. Well, anyway, put the kettle on. Someone get Slimmer Snapple because we're moving into tea country. Uh, yeah. So this gorgeous film, Jack, thank you so much. I haven't watched it since I first watched it in cinemas when I was about two years old in 1996. I loved it then. It's a good week to watch it, oh, really, wasn't it? My gosh. I love it even more now. With both her adoptive parents now dead, a black optometrist decides to make contact with her birth mother only to find out that she is white. That has got to be, I should have rewritten that one. That has got to be one of the, it's not bad. It's just not, it's just not. It's it, not what it's about, it's really. It's not what it's, it's not, about. That's not the reveal. No. I, I, li- not, I like the synopsis. I'll play devil's advocate. I okay. like that it gives you just enough to be interested in the movie. And that's it. So for me, when I saw this, I was like, oh, Mike Lee. Okay, it's interesting. I want to watch this. But that's just me. That's just me. 
Oh, a black person in a Mike Lee film. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. So I'm here. <laughs> so Jack, when was the first time that you saw Secrets and Lies? So Slim, every British boy goes through their Mike Lee phase. And my Mike Lee phase was in 2008, um, shortly after Happy Go Lucky came out on DVD. And that was my first. And I watched it blind and I was so pleasantly surprised. Um, I bought the big DVD box sets of his complete filmography, which are like super rare now. I still even brought some of the discs with me. But if you love one Mike Lee, you will love them all. The Soka has so many deep cuts. High Hopes is another film not, not a lot of people know about. That is a five-star movie. I love uh, Life is Sweet, Career Girls, Nuts and May, All or Nothing. All or Nothing. Gemma, Never Seen Naked. It never is seen. the an- Never Seen Naked. It is the anti-Paddington. Okay, I won't watch it. Um... <laughs> but it's a five-star film. But it's got it's got Katrin Cartledge in it, and I loved her. I miss her. I wish, I mean, I'm sure oh, her, yeah. everyone wishes. Have her, you she seen Career Girls? Yes, 100. She's, she's so, so amazing. And when I talked to Melanie Linsky last year about you know mm. the people who who had sort of influenced or inspired her, she's like she is she has built her whole career after Katrin Cartledge. Oh, wow. So if anyone loves Melanie yeah, Linsky, go and seek out Katrin Cartledge and. All of the not enough yeah. enough roles she played in her too short life, um, but yeah, we're talking about everything except secrets the and movie. lies. What was your Gemma? What was your experience seeing Secrets and Lies? Yeah, I remember when I first saw it, and I remember loving it. I mean, what can I say? It's a perfect film. Mm. It's his best film. It's his most fully realized film. I think it's his most three dimensional in the way that the characters are. And even the lighting of the freedom of the interior spaces is my favorite British film in general. Which oh wow! Big call. I okay, so I I struggle with British cinema usually. That either like so like sweet and cheesy, and it kind of embarrasses me. Don't a say bit. that I mean, about Paddington. Don't say that Paddington about Paddington is in that group. Uh, or <laughs> they're just like super gritty and bleak and just hard work. But Mike Lee is just like right in the middle. That sweet spot. He's the sweet spot between train spotting and Paddington, right? <laughs> spot, yeah, train spotting is definitely in that in that sweet spot as well. And just the way that his style just magnifies and affirms these little English quirks. Yeah, it, it like I know people like Cynthia and Morris, and Mike Lee makes me feel okay about being English, not proud, mm. but okay because he makes films that are true to British people's emotional wavelengths and Brenda Bleffin in this film. Ugh. Like Ugh. I put in one of my, my reviews that the cafe scene is why it won the Palme d'Or. Yeah. I stand by that. I saw that review. That moment, I love that scene. <laughs> the moment where she says, uh, I've never been with a black man. I would have remembered, wouldn't I? And it's kind of like absurd and a little bit offensive. And then she breaks down sobbing. Yeah. Your heart sinks. Her performance, like the way that she plays a person who hasn't been able to grow up since she's had her babies mm. is just so well done. Mm. And she, okay, so Al Pacino, Brenda Bleffin, that's my Mount Mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Those, 
Definitely these two. <laughs> With a little bit of Leslie Manville on the side, which I loved about Let's this. Let's do it. So here's the yeah. thing. When I saw it in 1996, I didn't know who a lot of these actors, you know, they, they weren't mm. at the heights of their fame either. And so it was a great film because uh, you weren't sort of swayed by any anything you knew about the actors. Well, I wasn't anyway. Mm. Whereas this mm. time around watching it, I'm watching it, but also with the knowledge that um, that Timothy Spall's uh, wife in the film is played by, um, sorry, Slim, I'm going to turn this into a Downton Abbey <laughs> episode, played by Mrs. Carson, Nee Hughes of Downton Abbey, who, if anyone only knows her from Downton Abbey, she's, you know, she's this cool, staunch, but quite doer, you know, elderly matron. She is so stunningly sexy and emotional and in trauma and going through it in Secrets and Lies. It's amazing. It's like, wait, that's Mrs. Hughes? Oh my God, what a fox. And <laughs> Lizzie Manville is just like playing, a, 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 you know, a type of social worker. So she's she's sort of in charge of uh, the adoption papers. Um, I've never seen her embody such a cool role, but at the time she was just the social worker. So that's the cool thing mm. about revisiting a film, I guess, after all this time. That's what I love about the company of actors in Mike Lee films. They can do everything and you buy it every time. Leslie yeah. Manville has some bigger roles in his previous films, but... Caleb has a review. Secrets and Lies is one of those rare movies that doesn't feel like it needs to manipulate its audience to elicit emotion. It's just honest. Yeah. And this is my second Mike Lee film, I think. All or Nothing. All or Nothing Ooh, was the first one that I've ever nice. seen. And I gave that one five stars. Ooh, There's uh, nice. the the scene with Timothy Spall. Uh. <sighs> The quote about oh being an gosh. old tree. I mean, yeah. one of my, maybe one of my favorite lines in any movie ever. <laughs> and then, so I, I knew, so then when he's in this one, I was like, oh, sweet. They're, they're back together again. And then he also gets another mm -hmm. like movie stealing quote in this yep. movie. Mm. Yeah. I've said it. So where's the bolt of lightning? Secrets and lies. We're all in pain. Why can't we share our pain? I've spent my entire life trying to make people happy. And the three people I love the most in the world hate each other's guts. I'm in the middle. I can't take it anymore. One of um, mine and Linda's most esoteric movie quotes that we say all the time is, uh, give us a cuddle, Morris. <laughs> we say that all the time. <laughs> This Give is, us a cuddle, Maurice. This is, is Maurice. <laughs> it's funny when we do it. Devastating from her. Devastating. <laughs> Maurice. <laughs> she, it is. Okay, so if, for for listeners who haven't seen Secrets and Lies yet, 100% invest the two hours. Um, know that It's on oh, HBO It's on it's Criterion on a, yeah. right now FYI Ah And know that it is um, Traverses a lot in the first hour And then the second hour Is basically entirely set at, at one barbecue In one house I love movies that do that That move us all around And then Once everything's established And it, it, we settle In the one place I my biggest note about this film is the, and I think everybody, almost every second person in their letterbox reviews writes this, uh, is that in almost any other genre or in the hands of most other directors, it would be played for such big drama. And 
there's a moment where some of the secrets and the lies kind of start coming out. And one of the characters leaves the house and kind of runs away, but they haven't gone far. And that's, uh, speaking personally, <laughs> I, I wrote in my notes, uh, just for shits and giggles, I'm just going to drop some big truth bombs at the next family barbecue. And then I remembered actually that <laughs> there is no need because my family has already been through this. Um, there's a beautiful child we met when they were 16, who's now very much a huge part of our family and mm. um, many other things besides. And in, in the moments when those truths were revealed, nobody went very far, like a door might close and some crying might happen for a couple of hours but then the cup of tea comes out and it's like, right, and on we go with this new information mm. about our family and the people that, that we're related to. And that's what happens. It's not the histrionics and the big drama of the Hallmark movies. It's the Mike Lee of it all. It's the, mm -hmm. okay, well, we just need to get on with it. Yeah, and I do, and I have a specific memory of my dad at one point just... At one point in life, when it was all a bit crazy, just kind of standing up in the middle of the family, Timothy Spall style, and going, how do you think it feels to be the one member of the family who is not mentally insane? <laughs> oh my God. I can see Timothy Spall saying that. Yeah, which made us all laugh and also made us all go, oh yeah, you are the calm center of this universe and you're doing an amazing job and we never thank you enough for it. So, all right. Okay, so if you need any more reasons to watch this film... There are a few lovely letterbox lists that this is on. Um, Lyricism with Sai, I guess the name is Sai. Films I would like to show to my mom. I'm like, Sai, don't wait. Mm -hmm. Just put that kettle on, mm. get that tea in that pot, start brewing it, get your mum round. Mm -hmm. um, as Ely writes, I've never felt so many emotions at once. I just want Cynthia to call me sweetheart. Be right back. Gotta call me mum. Like it really <laughs> sweetheart. 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 <laughs> In fairness, it is also on Steve G's list. Movies where a family gathering starts with subtle tension and then everything goes completely to shit. So this film, did it win a palm door? It did indeed. Ah. I tell you what, Very it would have cool. won if Letterboxd had been around in 1996. <laughs> mm -hmm. It it almost certainly would have been right up there. In the letterboxed year in review, don't you? <laughs> it was a can, so May. So it would have been, where would it have been on the mid-year leaderboard? We're talking about the Midway Report. The big top 25 highest rated films of the year so far. So we're at the halfway point. And by the time this episode is out, we'll have a link to the journal article in question and the list so that everyone can check out. But the top 25 so far, and to the shock maybe of no one, but everything, everywhere, all at once is the number one movie so far. What? Of the year. <laughs> Will it last, Jack? Do you think it'll last us to the end of the year for that specific film? Yes, I think it will. I mean, it, it's our number 10 of all time. We made a big fuss when it was our number one. And it, mm -hmm. I expected it to probably be a little bit lower by now, but half a million watches. Like, the only thing that will take it down is another everything everywhere all at once. And I don't believe that there is a Spider-Man movie coming out this year. Ah, thank God. It was pushed back. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Slim pause for editing. Remove <laughs> my thank God. <laughs> so I was looking at this list uh, and I have seen nine of the 25. Gemma, how many good. have you seen of the 25? Uh, I'm, I'm one ahead of you. I'm at ten. I'm at ten out of twenty-five. Let's okay. Let's guess how many Jack's seen. I'm thinking what 
23. There's quite a few international films in there that haven't had US distribution yet, but yeah, mm-hmm. 23, 24. Jack knows so many people in the biz, though. Jack has these insider contacts that get him into secret screenings. How many have you seen, Jack? I've seen 14. Oh, okay. Ooh, okay. So out of those 14, and we've got, like, it's what's really cool is that Last year we did a bit of a reshuffle of the eligibility rules, didn't we, Jack? Mm-hmm. Because we were yeah. we were getting into a situation where our um, years in review were getting a bit meh, meh, because they were based on having had US distribution, and so you'd get mm. a year like, and this sort of predates our shuffle, but a year where Paddington had come out in the UK, just for example, mm-hmm. and didn't come out in the states for about another nine months, and so shock horror didn't make. The year in review. It wasn't just that film, was it? It was a few specific ones that we... Well, it's more the films that never get US distribution. And there's a few here that Mm. probably just wouldn't, would be rated high from people of the local countries, but never make it just because we had US-centric rules. So we've got everything everywhere all at once at number one. We've got Marcel the Shell with Shoes on at number three. But between them is um, a Tamil language Indian film, Kadaisi Vivasai, which is a satirical drama, which I haven't seen yet. But that wouldn't be in the list if we hadn't changed the rules to allow for distribution in no, another exactly. country, right? So especially compared to the last few years of lockdown life, we have big movies, big ones, long ones too. Got mm. Free Hour Batman, RRR. Top Gun Maverick. I mean, Top Gun Maverick is our first billion-dollar movie in our mid-year review since Avengers Endgame. Mm-hmm. My. And uh, The Batman is our first film to reach a million watches before the mid-year review, which yeah. is a big deal for our growth and for the film. So are you saying that cin- cinema is back-ish, baby? Cin- cinema is back. <laughs> it has to be. Ooh, Jack has to- offici- if Jack says it, it's a fact. That's like a law. <laughs> We're yeah, going to go out with a bang as, as the apocalypse looms. <laughs> The one thing I do want to call out about the eligibility and how people use Letterboxd, especially my group of friends, discovering new movies is such a huge piece of using Letterboxd. Even if you don't use it with like a ton of friends and you just use it to log movies, you're going to go to these lists and you're going to find movies that you never would have heard of. And you're going to add them to your watch list like I do and you're going to wait to get that little notification ding if you're a pro member that it's available for you to watch. So... I love these lists. I love that the work that you, Jack, and the team put into these lists because it's so important to spread the word of these movies. That otherwise, if they're not included in these lists, maybe you just never know forever about and you never experience them. That's true. And that's so beautiful. And shout out to Dave Viz, right? Do you want to talk a little mm-hmm. bit about Dave and some of the other people who keep the keep the master lists going? Because there's also documentaries. There's also comedy specials. There's also, we haven't even talked about the Beatles rooftop concert. Davis does the top 250 of all time, and he was the OG to do it. And he was the one who inspired me to go ahead with the top documentaries list, which mm. caught the eye of HQ until they made it official. So I give all credit to Dave for the life I'm living. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Dave, very much. We owe you, Dave. Thanks for Jack. Gemma, what's your, out of the top 25 mid, midway, mm. mid-year mm-hmm. uh, report, What's your fave? What do you think it is? I think it's going to be RRR. Cha-cha real smooth. (laughs) (laughs) You're both 
Extremely <laughs> incorrect. Uh, no, RRR was definitely my one of my favourite viewing experiences of the year, along mm-hmm. with everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, but at the moment, it is a cross between. It's Mad God. No, but I love that Phil Tippett's Mad God is number 18 in this list. I absolutely love that for yeah. all of the bananas people like me who love stop motion well, and are prepared are prepared to go through hell in order to see some of the wildest <laughs> stop motion of the last 30 years. Um, no, sorry, it's a tie. It's a tie between a small shell and a young Irish girl. Um, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, which I'm, I'm only less than a week fresh from watching, uh, and have a lovely interview with the director, Dean Fleischer Camp, coming up. It'll be published mm. next week, I hope. And The Quiet Girl, which is an Irish film that premiered at Berlinale and it hasn't come out in the US yet. I don't know who's distributing it in the US. I hope that they are holding off until, not that the Academy Awards is the be-all and end-all, but Catherine Clinch, who's the young, brand new to acting actress who embodies the central role of uh, Kate, is... So incredible. This is a small, a quiet film. It's based on um, an Irish short story that everybody reads in school, apparently. It's sort of quite a wonderful and famous story about a, a, a quiet, she's quiet, she's introverted, but she's, you know, the kookiest, most well-read member mm. of a growing, very poor Irish family who have another baby on the way. And so, um, as they did, they send her away for a while so that they don't have one more mouth to feed. And she's fostered by a couple who don't have children, but who live in a larger farmhouse and, uh, you know, on land where she can run for the first time in her life. And it's, uh, that's all I want to say about it because it's just so, oh, and it also, no, the other thing I do want to say is that it is mostly in the Irish language, which is part of what makes it so beautiful is that it is uh, the Colm Barade, the writer and director, is, yeah, reclaiming, reclaiming his native language very, very deliberately in this. It's just the quiet girl. I cannot praise it enough. Oh, okay. And it's, and it's sitting at number four, list. sitting at number four out of that 25. It's what about you, high. Slim? Yeah. Is it... Would you like to take half an hour to talk about Top Gun Maverick? <laughs> <laughs> it's not Top Gun Maverick. What? So I have three movies that I've rated five stars out of the midway top 25. Ooh. Maverick is one of them. Last, It might be a tie. I was about to make fun of Gemma for choosing two, but I might choose two. <laughs> Go on. Uh, last night, I saw Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Yes. And, and? I <laughs> the ending to that movie, like... There's just something that happens at the end that is just so inspiring and beautiful that I was like frozen in my seat. And it's tied with After Yang. (gasps) After Yang, I feel like has been out for a little bit, maybe losing a little buzz, but Mm. After Yang is my other five-star movie of the year. I love it. I need to get the Blu-ray. Beautiful film. Very uh, meditative, very therapeutic in my opinion. So those are my two. Has your family learned the family dance? steps (laughs) (laughs) steps <laughs> <laughs> that's private we keep that in the family we don't share that with anyone else <laughs> did you see marcel alone or with the fam no i saw it with a crowd in philadelphia there was a like an early advanced screening everyone got marcel tickets so it was a fun experience lots of laughter and i'm pretty sure i could hear lots of crying too i cried several times oh yeah 
Jenny Slate is a dean. She is the best. And can I point out that Jenny Slate is also in everything, everywhere, all at once. So Jenny Slate is on the leaderboard at the midway point. Over and above Tom Cruise. It's exciting. (laughs) Um, Tom Tom wins the award of my heart. (laughs) You can't put a price on that. No, you can't. (laughs) Jack. Well, my favorite is certainly everything, everywhere, all at once. That's Uh, an all-time top 100 banger. One of the best theater experiences I've ever had. That communal Mm. experience of watching it for the first time with all of its surprises, like two every minute. Like it's nonstop ideas that just resonates with everyone. And I saw it in a packed theater the first time. And then I saw it in an empty theater the second time Mm. with one, two other, with a couple there. And the woman who was an Asian woman, she was in tears. So (gasps) this movie works in a big theater. And a dead theater. It feels like a little wow. secret when you see it in a oh. in a dead theater. Uh, but Blu-ray that. comes out next week, and I yeah. can't wait to go for round mm. three. Um, my, I've already actually watched After Yang three times, and I'm gonna watch it another three times. That film oh. is just therapy. I just love that it. I I would love if our world had its problems instead of the problems that our world currently has. <laughs> it just it feels like a world that has like made yeah. it, and it's like what. Well, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, they've made it through the muck. They've made and it, and they're they're worrying about other things. But the one thing I can't stop thinking about with After Yang is that is their public transport. I want to travel in that, whatever that is. It's something in a you tunnel a that involves in greenery. Yeah, with beautiful lighting, <laughs> and it seems really peaceful. Oh, wake up at home. Yeah, there's no Uber driver. I thought you were going to say like the After Yang Gap or something because the fashion sense in the movie was also pretty good. <laughs> so so true. Speaking of films that I would have loved to have seen in a cinema at the time with a crowd and probably could have and should have and didn't, Matthew Kasavitz's incredible 4.4 average rated on Letterboxd 1995 Tour de Force, Lahan. Thank you for bringing this to the Letterboxd show, Jack. I think I wanted to be I mean, it's first. It's got 13,000, 13,000 <laughs> fans on Letterboxd. So somebody was going to, but I'm glad it's you because I want you to download like live in person now that we have you, the Jack's Facts on this incredible French film. La N ranks number 31 of all time and it's climbing. And I don't know what the ceiling is for this movie. Let's get it to the top 10. This is definitely Kasavid's most popular and highest rated movie, as all of his other movies kind of suck. Um, It's our top rated film of 95, our number seven of the 90s overall, our second highest rated French movie behind Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and our number 18 highest rated non-English language movie of all time. It is very high. And it makes wow. me so proud. Surging. It's incredible. Yeah, and it's climbing after after all this time. Hmm. So this opened at Cannes in 1995. Uh, hilariously, Wiki- Wikipedia says, to a standing ovation. And I'm like, no shit, it's Cannes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's French. <laughs> and it's French. But it did win uh, Mathieu Kasavit's uh, Best Director. So now I'm watching Lahan for the first time. Having seen the poster for, what, two decades and going, nope, 
absolutely not. 100%. No, not interested. I don't care that everyone says this is the best film. I don't like the look of it. It's 100% not going to be me. What a ride I had. And also, then I, because I watched it on Criterion, started watching all the special features and I'm watching this behind the scenes with the director, except I'm going, where's the director? Because that's just Amelie's boyfriend there. Okay, so there's, <laughs> there's the three actors, there's Amelie's boyfriend, but where's the director? And why is this, why is Amelie's boyfriend here talking to the camera? And then I'm like, oh my God, they're the same person. <laughs> Brain explosion. So that was a fun moment this week. Jack, what was your first experience with this? Okay, so La N is a big deal for me. There is before La N and after La N. And as well as working on the IMDb Top 250, I was working on the Empire Magazine Top 201. There was an image of Lan, which I actually have for you. It's very similar to our backdrop. And there's a little blurb by Jodie Foster. It's a big champion of the film. And I was hooked from this. And I rented it and instantly it was, I was 14 years old. And I rented it and it was instantly the best film that I had ever seen. And I watched it four more times that week just to make the most of my £1.50 rental. <laughs> and you should see my crude, because, well, I, you know, I'm Jack. I have all of my facts. I've got archives of my lists. Have you, you got your 14-year-old letterboxed? You've got your 14-year-old letterboxed? I have my 14-year-old and 15-year-old uh, top oh 100 God. of all time. And no. the one in February 2007 is when I watched it. I just shared it with Gemma and Slim. And... <gasps> It's got La N at the top and then 99 Brain Dead. This is what I was told I should like movies that now have to pass another test to see if they're actually personal to me. <laughs> it was oh the God. type of discovery that made me hungry to just find more films like La N. And you wow. see in the second list I sent you, you can see the difference that it made. And yeah. it just opened the door for non-English language films, independent films, films that are not like about the plot. And even black and white films. I mean, this wasn't like brand new to me, but it wasn't my comfort zone until I watched Latin. That's classic. So in the first list, oh yeah, you got Fight Club at number three. (laughs) Exactly. Which passed the other test. It passed the other test. Fight Club was my previous number one, actually. (laughs) On my list that I love is that I've got, that you know, that my compromises. I have 2004 Saw ranked over The Godfather. And 2006, Borat, <laughs> ranked over 2001, A Space Odyssey. I did not know what I was doing. Jack, I no judgment. Absolutely. This is a judgment-free zone. <laughs> if, that was still, if that was still the rating, you would still mm-hmm. have a job with Letterboxd. It's okay. <laughs> you can be honest. <laughs> I agree. This movie, I first watched this, I think it was this year, for the first time ever. Some of my friends do a podcast on the Criterion. And they just go through and watch movies mainly for the first time. So I joined them on the journey and I was blown away by this movie. It's one of those movies where we mentioned Slim Films, but everyone says like, oh, you got to watch You got to watch this. You got to watch this. Yeah. One of the best movies ever. And you're like, yeah, whatever. Okay, shut up. <laughs> and then you're watching, you're like, man, I am an idiot for yeah. not watching this movie. The cinematography in this movie is insane. The way the mm-hmm. camera moves, uh, it, it just all blew me away. A hundred percent. Gemma, was it the same way for you? Oh yeah. I just, I want to say if you are like me, a feminist girly who doesn't want to watch violent men in movies and you were put off by the poster for the better part of two decades, it is that, but it's also (laughs) not that. 
It's also, <laughs> there's, a, on, there's a review. So Ashley Wells, I pulled this out, uh, three-star review of La Han. This is a really meticulous artistic achievement, but angry young men dramas are just not my cup of tea. I get really weary of scene after scene of guys going into a neutral situation, starting shit and then leaving. The one where they hit on the women at the art gallery is especially cringy, knowing that mm, one of them is yeah. carrying a gun. I love the breakdancing, though. And I'm like, yes. And also I'm prepared to set the angry young men of it all aside because it is a genius film about the kind of uh, boredom and joblessness and malaise of living in Paris's projects or, you know, ghetto as the art gallery guy calls it. There have mm-hmm. been riots going on. There is a friend of theirs uh, currently in hospital um, having been, you know, put into a coma at the hands of some quite violent cops. And it's just, it's it's set and it's one of those classic, it'll be in a whole bunch of letterbox lists that are about set in a single day. Um, yep. Yeah. Just like Dog Day? Yeah, just like Dog yeah. Day. Anti-cop film, just like Dog Day? Um, yeah, an anti-cop film, uh, an anti-sort of capitalism film, uh, very mm. much examining the classes the class system that France doesn't think it has, but has the racism that France doesn't think it has because it loves Algerians, but it's 100% racist. Uh, And it's funny, you know? It's because you can't go through an entire day just being serious and an angry young man all the time. There's moments of light and levity. uh, And it's it's also, they are angry young men and they are incapable of talking to each other about their feelings. But you can see that. There's a brotherly bond between them. Yeah. I've always been super drawn to, <laughs> even through the bickering and the bantering. I mean, this movie at 14, it did for me what movies are supposed to do. It puts you in the character's shoes to the point where you feel like you're that fourth missing member of the gang. Maybe not Gemma, but I did. And you get a look into the inner life of people that you don't really relate to or Jack, with. I would have been in that art gallery at midnight <laughs> drinking champagne going oh, okay. what are these guys doing here but also oh they're quite hot <laughs> okay so my favorite question which of the three La Hen boys would you date would I date oh obviously Huber oh yeah thank you he's brilliant I mean he, he you've at first the first few times I watched it you think that Vince is the most interesting character, mm. even though he's always picking his ear and picking his nose and picking his bum. <laughs> when he's in the when he's in the cinema and he sits down and then he just picks his nose and flips <laughs> his bogey away, I'm like, that is that is the most violent thing that's happened in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's Huber's reactions to everything that is the most compelling bit of the film because his instinct is to to flee, not fight. Like the other guys, and he he has a strength, literally and figuratively, that Vince and Saeed don't have, which I find really interesting. Slim, who? Yeah, I think you 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 picked the right character. Mm. That Jim is fit. Yep. Oh man, yep. we've seen him with his shirt yep. off. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen the yep. other guys Absolutely. with their shirt off. Gemma. Ah, oh, I mean, it's a no-brainer. Also, his mum is a great cook, and so I'd love yep. to have her as a mother-in-law. It's Ubia all the way. But I love, I did love how he's sort of set up as the, you know, if anyone's going to get out of of 
Bonlieu, it's going to be him. If anyone's going to get out and do something else with his life, you know, if anyone's going to get out of France altogether, it'll be Hubert. And he seems like he's the kind of intellectual, smooth, calm one. And then every now and then he just yeah. sets off like the rest of them do, especially in the art gallery. And I yeah. just, I love that. When he punches I, um, the cop. Oh my God. <laughs> but to save his life. Oh, That's spoilers. Idiot. <laughs> <laughs> But I did, like I said, I watched it on uh, Criterion. So then there were all these, you know, special features you could watch and um, mm-hmm. watch the bit with Amelie's boyfriend uh, who's talking about, so they're in this apartment in in a flat in one of the buildings in the Bonneau and they're saying we have to live here in order to make this right, in order to have people trust us and in order to be able to film this because we don't have permits and we probably wouldn't get them we have to live here so they've rented a flat and they're filming the flat and it's not like it's so great to know that they weren't you know in hotel digs up the road Mm -hmm. as as a cast and as actors they were they were in it and they cast from the streets and you can feel that and you can see it there's such a sense of community that everybody knows everybody and just makes the film seem so much larger than it is yeah I love that. there's so much visual flexing happening in this movie. God. And I mean, there's, the, there's one scene with the camera zooming in and then zooming out on the three characters on the balcony. It's like mind blowing how skilled the camera work in this. So yeah. before this, I was thinking to myself like, hey, you know, what else did this director he had to have gone on to like Spielbergian career? But it didn't happen. No. There's a couple movies that I've heard of. There's a, a Vin Diesel movie, Babylon AD, that I've heard of. In fairness, he did become Bjork's boyfriend in Amelie. <laughs> That's true. That's maybe that was the ultimate. But some, this goes to like my thought of like some directors really want to tell like their preferred one main story. They get like, I, I thought M Knight was kind of this way for a while. Like maybe M Knight had like three stories that he wanted to tell when he was a kid, three great ideas. Why do you think the director has never reached the heights of this film? Because he didn't end up doing a social commentary like this again. I'll need to double check that. You know, it happens, happens to the best of them. I mean, mm-hmm. the reviews are coming in for Thor, Love and Thunder. Um, let's just say <laughs> Hunt for the true. World of People is a great film. I don't know. Yeah. Just, <laughs> I mean, he was Amelie's boyfriend. To me, it's like he didn't really need to do that's much all, more. He could have done. He retire after that. Again. He, He's done. He, yeah. And it, like between Lahan <laughs> and Amelie, I think, you know, it's totally fine. And Yeah, you can retire and, after that. Yeah, and you never know what, um, you know, what the vagaries of a, creative career might be or what might lead to or what the pressures once you get a little bit of fame you know might put on you in terms of the decisions you make next like whether to be Mm. in um, John Legend's terrible new art jazz band and go on a world tour (laughs) rather than stay home in LA and open (laughs) incredible open your jazz dive bar my god the similarities between Sebastian and uh, our previous movie are off the charts, as Jenna has eloquently portrayed. Yeah. I mean, come on, tell me how, how you would have segued from La Hen to La La Land. Speaking of... Uh, they both, they uh, both begin with La? I don't know. 2016, La La Land, Damien Chazelle, 3.9 average, 40... Everyone, I need everyone to sit down for this real quick. 47,000 fans. Mm. That's not a typo. No, the top. What? 
That's is real. Wrong with you all. Four, excuse me. Forty-seven thousand fans. <laughs> Uh, this does this movie need an introduction? <laughs> La La Land. Everyone listening to this podcast has probably lo- loves La La Land. This is the quintessential quote unquote letterboxed movie, in my opinion. Uh, Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone, the musical that set the world aflame. Jack, what's your experience with this movie seeing it? But then also, what's your experience with this movie being a letterbox movie? And how, how did that change things when it hit Letterboxd? Okay, so I have to admit here that I am one of those goobers who moved to Los Angeles shortly after La La Land came out. <laughs> Nothing specifically to do with the film. This was happy timing. Um, in August of 2016, I proposed to Linda, our booker. And we had a long distance relationship at that point, And we decided that the next trip would be the last trip. Um, I went back home and I covered the London Film Festival as I usually do for, for the last time and La La Land was screening. Oh my gosh. And basically, okay, so I was definitely one of the people overhyping it before it came out. I definitely slimfluenced Slim. <laughs> and I I loved Whiplash. Whiplash is revelatory for me. That's top 10. If we hadn't already done yeah. it in the show, I might be talking about Whiplash. So my mm. year kind of revolved around this movie, even one of our engagement Pictures was taking on one of the La La Land bridges that was used in the marketing at the time. Um, and it was a big part of why I started doing the top 50 highest rated because I wanted to see where La La Land ended up. And I think sending corrections to HQ about the actual letterboxed official lists put me on <laughs> Matt's radar. And he was like, well, if you're so big and clever, why don't you do it then? And now I'm the list editor. <laughs> and um, more besides. And more besides. Um, so how many lists does La La Land sit on? Oh, it's it's in so many, over 200,000. But Holy I, so, what? so when I actually first saw it, I had the worst, best time seeing it. I need to know more. To, to clarify, um, to get from my house to the screening, there's a bit of a walk to the train station. Then you take the little train to the big train to the tube to the 45-minute line outside of the press screening that was, you know, a queue, sorry, in central London. And so that's like three or four hours from leaving my house to getting to to the start of the movie. But the thing about me is that I have a very, very small bladder. And I also (laughs) had no friends. And I knew that there would be no mercy. I take one foot out of this line and the day is wasted. And that's not happening to me. I had the best seat in the house. I saw other chumps get turned away. And it immediately uh, lived up to the hype. Another day of sun, winter, hilarious. And the movie is just a cinematic magic factory. I mean, it knows it, it winks it to you at the whole time. And I, I was all there for it. And the second half, I was like, this is so good, but please, please be the last scene. I can't take anymore. <laughs> so I essentially tortured myself for this movie and I, I don't do that anymore. But right after the festival, I got a job at a cinema to make the money for the move. And this is the cinema where I grew up on. I, I saw lots of my formative movies there and I watched La La Land another three times. And it's, wow. it's my most seen film in the, in the cinema, probably always will be. And whenever it was playing, I always went up and watched a little bit and liked to watch the crowd. I told everyone that it'll win Best Picture, which is not necessarily incorrect. <laughs> and that week of the Oscars, I watched, I watched it in the cinema the week before, packed my bags, said my goodbyes, and then watched the Oscars with Linda. And then the envelope happened. 
Oh, she was a she was a moonlight stand, and we had his and her moonlight and La La Land pictures above our bedside that I took with me from the <laughs> cinema. And you know what? In hindsight, I'm fine with it not winning best picture. Like the backlash would have been so much worse. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. So Jack, it'd be a three point seven to get into the. <laughs> it was really high when it came out. It was like three point or four point four. It was in our top thirty of all time. So it's kind of. Went gone down a lot over the years, mm-hmm. but it's still a big, big deal for a lot of boxed. Yeah, I think that does tend to happen though with, um, you know, with with films on Letterbox that uh, feel like the first time they've ever happened, especially mm-hmm. for uh, uh, people at the sort of younger end of the Letterbox demographic. And then yes. over time, those people do exactly what Letterbox is made for, where they follow the. They follow the threads. They follow the side alleys from a film they love, and discover other films. So there's a there's a list that call that's called. And it's a brilliant list. If you love insert American film, then you will love insert foreign film. And I just looked it up to see what the and I could have predicted this, but the La La Land foreign alternative is. Can you guess? Young Girls of Rockford. Or umbrellas, umbrellas of, of yeah, umbrellas. umbrellas of Cherbourg. So it could have been either mm. of them. I would probably yeah, say sure. young girls, but yeah, for sure. So then once you watch that, then you're on a whole different journey. And then over time you go, well, actually maybe that's a five and that's a four. It's, you know, it doesn't drop down to a two. I don't know. But um, to get into why you love this film beyond just the circumstances around it, like yes. the, the film itself, can I can I start with a film list by Sour D that is entitled... Films that are even more damaging to think of than to actually see. I I think that's very true because this didn't really occur to me until the second or third viewing of why it impacted me so much. So obviously, the film is about the way that certain people can enter your life, impact you profoundly, push you forward, then leave your life. And then you're barely acquaintances afterwards. And that's always going to be bittersweet at best. And But they have that scene in there where they say... Um, like shortly before the ending, I'm always going to love you. So this film is offering that unconditional love for those fleeting people. So rather than being sour about missing people or that the time was cut short, you know, I was leaving England at the time. I was going for a big point of transition. There were people who I probably won't see again. And there's already been people in LA that have come and gone in my life. So that was a real gift that the film gave me to kind of reconcile with that. I really needed that at the time. Look, I only had an afternoon. I only had that one afternoon in LA, Jack. I'm so sorry. Yeah. But, but I have unconditional uh, love because of La La Aww. Land. <laughs> but it is, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a um, there's sort of a time before uh, the late 80s through 90s, I guess, rom-coms uh, where there was a lot of nuance around relationships. And then suddenly there was this sort of whole fucking happy endingness going on Mm. for a good decade or more. Beautiful films like this sort of sit in a space where exactly as you say, we get to, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire even, where we Mm. get to go, here was a great love. Yeah. And Mm. and the ending is different to what you're used to. It's not not a happy ending. It's not Mm. a happy ending. But we're just acknowledging that in our lives, we have great loves who may not be the people we're with now and they as you say they have a great effect and I, I I love that I remember the first time I watched it really not loving it partly because <laughs> partly because the promise of that opening number I felt 
didn't pay off in terms of what I understood musicals to be. And Mm. I was very, very ill-prepared to accept that Damien Chazelle could do something innovative with musicals. And I wanted my big closing number and I wanted my big middle number and I didn't get them. I got a big (laughs) opening number and then a whole bunch of Ryan and Emma, you know, two white people running around LA being being (laughs) self-focused. Nice people, but... And then I think the other thing I didn't like about it first time round was the... Um, trying not to spoil this for anyone who hasn't yet seen La La Land, which can't be many listeners, was the alternatives at the end and the idea of actually seeing them. I mean, we uh, we sometimes see a person and imagine what might have been had we taken that different path. But the I guess the sliding doorsness of it, I was like, I don't need to see that. I just can see it in her face while she's listening mm-hmm. to him playing that song in the bar. That's good enough for me. But again, in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, but then that's how we got the closing number, the sort of American in Paris, uh, you know, really compared to the opening, which is literally, yeah, literally in LA on location and the closing being on a set. And so, so imaginary and beautiful. I'm sort of, I'm prepared to like it. It seems like a musical for people who don't really like musicals. And Mm. I don't want to be a La La Land bro. And I understand why big fans of musicals tend to be critical of La La Land because the lip sync is a little bit off. The dancing is not quite as weightless as it should be. The production was probably a bit rushed, but I don't mind that it's rough around the edges. That It, it speaks to me that it's about the passion and the potential of it. And it's more mm. human to be flawed. And to be honest, I struggle with big classic Hollywood musicals sometimes because I just see them smiling through the pain. I know how hard they push themselves and nobody broke their back for La La Land. <laughs> no way. Nobody broke wow. a sweat making wow. La La Land on those dance numbers. Yeah. Uh, Sam wrote a review. I've taken all your criticisms into account and have determined that you're all wrong. I This is a first time watch for me. I have avoided crazy. the fog of La La Land as long wow. as I could. Yeah. This is why I chose it. It's it's fine. Oof. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. Unfortunately, I'm in the middle of the road for La La Land. Some of the moments between the two leads were was very well done. Um, some of those close-ups of Emma at the end where she's just like looking, you know, thinking, where I thought those were gorgeous. And I also loved Whiplash. Like Whiplash was... Uh, I think I gave that five stars. The last 20 minutes of that are historic. But this did feel to me, I'm, I love watching those old classic musicals. So I think that's probably where my disconnect f- came from, almost probably from like the onset with the highway scene. Mm. I was like, oh, this is weird. Is this a musical like old, like kind of homage? Or I don't know. Th- there's something about the vibe of like a LA musical that just I wasn't prepared for in a certain way. I'm not really sure how to explain it. But again, like I said, I made the joke about they didn't break a sweat. Like it did feel <laughs> almost kind of like a slowed down modern musical. And maybe that's just not my bag. Wow. Some modern musicals. Mm, mm. So that's my truth. Fine. It's the ultimate burn on the Letterbox show, isn't it? I mean, fine. <laughs> There's no I'm, worse I'm... <laughs> insult than saying a movie was fine. <laughs> I love when this movie goes big, but it really excels when it goes small. Like those uh, small quiet moments, those cl- the close-up of the speaker, the close-up mm-hmm. of the water stain. It's just more introspective in an interesting mm-hmm. way. It just has ah. such a great sense of ebb and flow, especially in the someone's in the crowd scene when it goes to the mirror and then it kind of builds back up to it. I really love that. 
I was I remember being irrationally angry the first time round that when she goes and does the big the big audition uh-huh. and they go, just uh-huh. tell us a story. She tells someone else's story. She tells her aunt's story. I'm like, yeah, but tell no, us no, a story about you. You've she, done nothing. She, she was going to make a Mike Lee film because they're gonna base what? the movie around the actress. And in the in Mike Lee movies, they base it around people they know. So I'm perfectly fine with that. Okay, fine. I I will buy that. Give now. me a cuddle, Maurice. <laughs> Maurice. Oh, sweet. Uh, we're going to Paris. I'm gonna be a star. So, but what I did do this time round was watch it in like 30 minute increments over about four or five nights. And oh, yeah, uh, so that's can, why. Yeah, high recommend. It really is the best way to watch La La Land as kind of like a um a five episode you know, TV series kind of in the vein of, I don't know, mm-hmm. I May Destroy You or something like that. I was really interested this time around in the in the sort of classic relationship dynamics of two creatives whose jobs are not nine to five predictable and therefore they find themselves uh, double booked at times that are extremely important to their relationship and also their career. And poor old Ryan Gosling's character had the worst of that, thanks to John Legend and all the things he needed him to do, like wear a piano key tie in a, <laughs> in a photo shoot. And I was just, yeah, I was really struck by, I remember at the time thinking, this guy's a dirtbag. He's no good. He's no good for her. She needs to leave him. Um, and being really, again, irrationally angry that he got to do something so uh, magnanimous to push her career forward, you know, when he when he drives to her. And then this time around going, well, he had to pull something out of the bag. And in pulling it out of the bag, he probably also knew that his fate was sealed. And I appreciate that there's maybe more nuance to it now. And mm. I'm, it's okay, Damien. I will. I do have Babylon on my watch list. I am interested in what your next film is going to be. I'm a, yeah. Make good from Gemma at the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> Should we dig into the secret stats, the secret sauce at the end of every episode? We're rapidly running out of time, but we usually like to focus on the rated higher than average section of the stats page. I see a few, I mean, I see a few popular ones on here, Gemma. Did you have any that you wanted to call out specifically to get more details on from Jack? Well, I did want to, and I haven't put it in the notes, so this is a surprise also for Slim, but I I did... Obviously, want to query something in the rated lower than average section, which is um, a Baz Luhrmann movie with one star attached to it. Uh oh. Yeah. Yep. Uh-oh. Um, I watched that in class and wanted to walk out. I'll give it another go. I promise you. What was I, it for our audience? It was Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Oh that was my not gosh. my preferred way to watch Romeo and Juliet, but I really struggle with Shakespearean films that use that don't interpret. The dialogue, I just get lost. Sorry, okay, Shakespeare. Fair call. But, um, okay, but was 300 really that bad? A half star? Really? I, I mean, was, that was a cinematic experience. It might be a shit film, but it's also a fun film. You'll notice that a lot of my lowest rated are around 2007, 2008, when I was first getting into film. Ah. And now I'm like, there's no way that 300 is worse than the sequel. 
and the bar has <laughs> got to be lower than where I initially said it. But I just don't go there. I just don't watch the actual no, you're not gonna, movies. You're not going to live bump up, bump up the rating of 300 live on the show <laughs> while we watch. Why give go? One of the other ones that cracks me up too that's low rated is that'll annoy some sci-fi dweebs. The Fifth <laughs> Element at a star and a half. That's painful. That must have also bit... <laughs> So many so iPhones annoying. just got slammed onto a kitchen table after I revealed that rating but from those folks. Jack, you're the director of one of your four favorite films is in The Fifth Element. You got to give Ooh. it one more star for Matthew Kasovitz. No. <laughs> Could not even be, be swayed. No. no. Just like he that. is Latin no. and that's it. The end. Okay, here's something we can agree on in your highest rated films. I I Absolutely agree with you, although maybe I'd give it five stars because I just love it. Four and a half stars for Blinded by the Light, oh a film that God. was woefully underrated thanks you... to yesterday coming out the same year. Gemma, you have no idea where I begin and end with Blinded by the Light. For one, it's in that group of uh, British films that I said were very cheesy and painful, but this film is about a young journalist who discovers the music of Bruce Springsteen and that's me like I you've you've heard me talk about films it goes Bruce Springsteen movies that's how much <laughs> I love the bus and obviously I'm British that movie's British and I and also slam, slam it's a modern musical you're gonna it's love a musical. it it's the <laughs> mamma mia of Bruce Springsteen and I actually <laughs> saw it at a test screening uh, shortly after Sundance, I was a little bit intrigued. I didn't think that it would connect to me that much, but I felt so exposed. Like this movie sees me, but it exposes me. I've got a hot, like 200 people watching me when we watched that film. And then when they had the comment card, I was like, you have no idea how you managed to find the biggest Bruce Springsteen British person in Los Angeles. I can't help you because you've already lost the sale. But thank you so much for this movie. <laughs> I love it. And it's Gurinda Chada, who I adore. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I really do. I, she, she may bend it like Beckham um, mm -hmm. and also Bride and Prejudice, which is one of the most fun rom-coms ever. She, so the thing is that, like I said, this film came out around about the same time as Yesterday, which also features, uh, you know, a male lead of colour in a working class since sort of lower middle-class scenario with famous songs of famous band, which in this case happens to be the Beatles and Ed Sheeran's in it. So it kind of won. And oh, who else is involved? Oh, our good friend, Mr. Love, actually, uh, Richard Curtis. And so it kind of was always going to win the marketing campaign over, you know, this beautiful female directed film with, with Bruce Springsteen songs. And I feel really sad. That's because Blinded by the Light was made for me and me alone. <laughs> And also me. And also me. <laughs> Yesterday is at 2.9 on Letterboxd, but Blinded by the Light is at 3.3 average. So it's at that Gemma sweet spot. Okay, so 287,000 Letterboxd people have watched Yesterday. 47,000 mm. have watched Blinded by the Light. And that wow. is the problem right there with modern society. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Moulton was our guest today. You can follow Jack on Letterboxd and hear his amazing facts on every episode of the Letterboxd Show and Weekend Watch List. 
All the links to the other accounts and lists and reviews we mentioned today are in the episode notes. Thanks to our crew, Linda Moulton, for booking and looking after our guests. Jack for the facts. Wait for my dog to get her scritches <laughs> so that she can go back upstairs. Slim for the scritches. <laughs> okay, she goes. Jack for the facts, Sophie Shin for the episode transcript, and to Moniker for the theme music. Remember to tune into Weekend Watchlist, our other weekly podcast. Every Thursday, Slim, Mia, and or Mitchell explore the latest releases in cinemas and on streaming. And you will need Weekend Watchlist more than ever over the next few weeks because Slim is going camping and I'm off to touch some snow. Letterbox for Faves is on break. If you miss us, was it? Woo! (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to miss you, Slim. Uh, And if you miss us, you can send us mail at podcast at letterbox.com to tell us what you're liking and what other features you might want on the show. Or leave us a nice review or rating on all good podcast review and rating platforms that'd be nice absolutely be a nice little break for us the letterbox show is a tape deck production thanks for listening and we'll be back for the second half of this 2022 season after a short break indeed i'm letting life hit me until it gets tired Cuddle, Boris. This, this, this is a tape deck podcast.